Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbera, a celebration of Bill Hannah, Joe Barbera, and the thousands of people, past and present, who have shared in their entertainment tradition. And now your host, Greg Airbar. Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbera. I'm Greg Airbar, thanking you for joining me. And I'm here with my special guest, Mark Evanier. If you're one of the few that don't know who Mark Evanier is, Mark knows pretty much everybody in show business, especially the classic people. He has worked for Hanna-Barbera. He has worked on the Garfield show and all kinds of stuff. But rather than me yammer on, I want to introduce Mark. Hi, Mark. Hello. I didn't know I'd done those things. You did. Now let's uh, start with, like on Scooby-Doo, we'll say you're the famous Mark Evanier, and then you can slip into the script all the things you do. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the the famous Mark, as opposed to all the unknown Mark Evaniers out there, yes. I write all sorts of different things. I grew up loving live action TV, animated TV, comic books, cartoons, all sorts of things. And I spent my life doing the things I liked when I was a kid, writing them instead of watching them or reading them. I've worked for almost every big comic book company. And I've worked for almost every big animation firm as of, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago. It's really just this silly little idea of going around and doing what you wanted to do when you were a kid. I call it a career, but it's actually just a, an indulgence of a nine-year-old kid. Living the dream. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, it's possible to live a dream when you're inept at everything else, <laughs> when there's really no other profession for you. When you can't do anything else in this world. So you have to do something that you loved when you were a child. I first became a fan of you with the Marvel Hanna-Barbera comics, which were flawless. They were beautiful. Uh, well, thank you. I enjoyed that tremendously. And it was an odd job. I, I think I probably at some point have told you the story of how I got involved with those, but it came out of nowhere. It was like one day I was unemployed and all of a sudden I was employed. And I owe that to a man named Chase Craig, who was the editor when I wrote for Gold Key Comics. And I wrote a lot of Disney and Warner Brothers and Hanna-Barbera Comics for him when he was editor-in-chief of the West Coast Gold Key office. And then he retired, and I just didn't quite get along with his replacement. We just didn't click as a writer and an editor. Nice man, but he had different ideas of stories than I did. And I drifted away to other things, including live-action television. And I did a year as a story editor on Welcome Back, Cotter, the TV show. And the day after I left that job, I'm saying to my then-girlfriend, gee, I got to find something to do. And she said, well, why don't you, what's the best job you ever had? And I said, writing, you know, Scooby-Doo comics for Gold <laughs> Key for Chase Craig. And they were drawn by a man named Dan Spiegel. And she said, well, why don't you get that job back? And I said, because... Gold Key no longer does Scooby-Doo. Dan Spiegel doesn't work for them. Chase Craig is retired. In other words, there's not a single element of that job I can get back. And about a half an hour later, Chase Craig phoned me, and he'd come out of retirement to edit a new line of Hanna-Barbera comics for the studio. And Dan Spiegel was drawing the Scooby-Doo comic book, and he wanted me to write it. So it was like out of nowhere. <laughs> this, this dream job that I thought I could never get back was now back and better. And I did that for a number of years, and I, it was a lot of fun. And then Chase retired again, and I took over the whole operation and I did that for years. And when I started writing for Hanna-Barbera cartoons, I already had an office in the building because I was doing the comic books out of there. Where was your office? How many floors did they have there? 
the building I was in had two floors and a weird penthouse that was um, not quite. It was kind of a library attic. Uh, there was a, an attempt to turn it into some sort of a Hanna-Barbera archive for a while, but it was I was on the uh, well, I was on the first floor for part of the time. They kept moving me around. They kept moving me to different places in the building, depending on what I was working on and what happened. And the thing was, I was they kept giving me very good offices, and I only came in two or three days a week for a couple hours. People who were there full time had much worse offices than I did, which I always felt guilty about. I said, put me in a smaller office. And they kept giving me a good office for some reason. Did your office have that lattice design that I see when Yogi is sitting at the desk with Bill and Joe, you know, that uh, 64 I, thing? At one point it did. I probably had, I think I had six different offices in that building. Uh, I shared one for a brief time with Tex Avery, wow. which is, you know, a pretty impressive name drop to have as, as uh, and the best office I had for a while was, I can't describe it to somebody that was never in the building. And one of the strange things about Hanna-Barbera was that sometimes when they fired someone, they didn't just replace somebody in their office. They moved the hallways around and the walls around, and your office did not exist. The first person I worked for at Hanna-Barbera, which was on a live-action project, uh, was a man named Herb Solo, oh, S-O-L-O-W, yeah. whose name everybody remembers from the end of Star Trek. Well, he was working for Hanna-Barbera at the time, and he had this lovely office and things. And when they did his division, suddenly they rearranged the building, and his office was now the front entry hall where you <laughs> – physically, he was now the reception area. And they moved the reception area to the other side of the building. It was very strange. It's a strange to work for a company where the walls move more than the cartoons. That's an interesting uh, area of the company history, too, is that the solo mm. company was really Hanna-Barbera. So Man from Atlantis basically was their show. But I guess like Disney with Touchstone, they felt like the name meant cartoon, so they used his name instead. Am I correct? Well, the parent company was Taft Broadcasting at that time. And they hired Herb Solo because Hanna-Barbera had not made a lot of inroads into live action. And Herb had impeccable credentials as, a, uh, as an executive selling live action shows. He had done that for Paramount for years. So Taft hired him, installed him in an area. Uh, it was in the Hanna-Barbera building, but he was kind of independent of the cartoon part of it. I got hired for the first time in the wrong part of the building. <laughs> this is before the comic books, even. So my then partner, I, Dennis, wrote some stuff for Herb for the Hanna-Barbera. And he was trying to sell shows. And he got one of a, sh a show we created, Option, at CBS. But they never produced it. They never, never made the pilot. And he just couldn't quite get anything on the air. So finally, he went to Taft and said, the name Hanna-Barbera is killing me with the networks. So, and they made it solo productions for a while. And I think, or Taft, it had several different names, but none of them were Hanna-Barbera suddenly. And he yeah. sold the man from Atlantis and one or two other little things. And that, that didn't work out. He finally left there. And by which time I was doing the comic books. And then when Hanna-Barbera hired me the next time, it was not for cartoons. It was hired for a live action pilot that Hanna-Barbera was producing. Because for a while, Joe Barbera thought I was a live action writer which at the time I was, but only because nobody had given me a cartoon job. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I wrote a pilot for them for a, a syndicated live action show. Was that the Beach Girls? That was the Beach Girls. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's a, uh, a strange moment in my past. <laughs> and then 
I finally got into writing animation for Ruby Spears. Uh, and Ruby Spears hired me to write animated shows for them. And at one point, this lady at ABC, who liked my scripts I was doing for them via Ruby Spears, said to Joe Barbera, hey, you want to get this guy to write for you, Mark Evanier. He goes, Mark Evanier, he's a live action writer who worked for us. <laughs> and Joe, Joe Barbera called me up and he said, why didn't you tell me you could write cartoons? And I said, I only told you 14 times. <laughs> I'll bet he had that in his head because of the their early sort of learning as they went with Flintstones and especially Top Cat when they hired live action writers and they had difficulty getting them to keep the stories moving and having motion in them. And there was dialogue heavy and things like that. Yeah. Well, I think what happened was for some reason, and you have to kind of work in the TV business for a while to understand that things sometimes happen like this without a really intelligent reason behind them. There had to be like a company-wide policy they would say live action writers can't write cartoons. And sometimes that was true. Some of them couldn't. Lloyd Turner could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Jack Mendelson could. There were yeah. there were a lot of guys who wrote a lot of stuff for them who had great live action credentials. And some of them couldn't. So they'd have a policy for a while that we're not hiring live action writers to write cartoons. And then one day someone would say, Hey, you know what would jazz our shows up and maybe we could sell some more the network, if we use some of those guys who are writing those primetime hit shows. Yeah. So suddenly they're hiring live action writers and not hiring cartoon writers. And again, some of them were good and some of them weren't. Then at one point, after uh, Ren and Stimpy hit big, somebody said, oh, we should have animators write all the scripts. And that didn't work either. You mm-hmm. can't make a blanket policy that, you know, oh, well, if he can draw, he can write. No, some people can draw and not write. Some people can write and not draw. <laughs> and some people can do both. There's no one all-encompassing situation where everybody has the same skill level. I was caught in the middle of that for a little while. And then once I became known as a live action and animation writer, both, then people kept offering me projects that combine live action and animation. So, <laughs> or which you know, were on the cusp. Like I worked on this thing, Carlton, Your Doorman for MTM, yeah. mm-hmm. which was a cartoon show produced by a sitcom company, Mary Tyler Moore's company, and written completely by live action writers and using the kind of voice people who would be hired for on camera. They didn't hire Dawes Butler and June Foray and Frank Welker for Carlton. They hired the people they would have hired if the show had been live. Hmm. who at that point was Lorenzo Music, <laughs> who was the producer of the show and head writer of it also. Yeah. So it, you, know, you just have these blanket policies, and they only apply as far as they apply. They don't apply to everybody. Yeah, there's a tendency to pigeonhole. It happens in any kind of the creative works, too. It was the yeah. same thing with performers. When you see somebody who you wouldn't believe had a singing voice. You know, here's one point. The best office I had was located next to a man, I'm sure you knew well, of Doug Wildey. Oh, boy, yeah. Of course, had produced Johnny Quest, and he was in there doing the Godzilla show. And Doug and I were old friends. We knew each other. We were neighbors at Hanna-Barbera. And he comes to my office one day, and he says, Mark, I need you to write some Godzillas for us. I'm not happy with the scripts. You got to write some Godzillas for us. And I said, okay, sure. How do we start? He said, okay, I got to call NBC and just get you approved as a writer. So start thinking of premises, and as soon as you're approved as a writer, we'll have a meeting and figure out what you can write as the first script. So about an hour later, Doug comes in my office, and he says, you won't believe this. They don't want you writing Godzilla. They say you're a humorous writer, yeah. and they said, we'd really rather have him on the new Flintstone show we're doing. 
So Bob Ogle's story at Tignout, go down to Bob Ogle and he'll give you a Flintstones assignment. I went, okay, thanks, Doug. So I went down to Bob Ogle's office and he said, yeah, Mark, we're dying to have you write the Flintstones show. I got to call over to NBC and just verify that you're approved and just start working up some premises and we'll talk about that later today. And an hour later, Bob Ogle comes into my office and he says, they said that you're really a superhero adventure writer and they don't want you on the Flintstones. <laughs> and, and I ended up working on neither show. Oh, boy. That, that kind of thing happens a lot and you cannot let it upset you because you just have to kind of laugh at how the business is very strange and there are delightful things about it being strange and with the delightful thing comes those kind of frustration you can't love how weird it is at times in certain aspects and not you shouldn't get upset with the bad parts that come with the good parts yeah it's like he's a floor wax he's a dessert topping wait a minute <laughs> yes i actually at one point was both of those so that's it's very simple <laughs> wow and i guess your philosophy is just keep moving forward and things just seem to come along so instead of getting all upset about it just say i'll talk to people and see what's doing is that kind of how well, you do it i'll tell you how i do it is i have been a professional writer since july of 1969 which is, you can do the, the moon landing. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. In fact, they decided man has landed on the moon. Now it's conceivable that Evanier can have a writing career. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. We'll, we'll hire him when man walks on the moon, right? Oh, we did it. Okay. So during that time period, whatever number of years that is, it's 50 something odd years. I have never been exclusive to any one job. I have always worked for more than one company and, and frequently in one genre or I was writing cartoons while I was writing live action TV shows and I was writing comic books when I was writing cartoons also. And if you don't do only one thing, then you don't worry about losing any one job. Mm -hmm. And at what point it was a period of my life when I was kind of simultaneously writing the that's incredible TV show for ABC, the Richie rich cartoon show for Hanna Barbera, for ABC, which, by the way, had the same standards and practices person, both shows. I would argue <laughs> with her. I would and, literally and, say to her, if you will leave that joke in Richie Rich, I'll cut this other thing out of that's incredible. That bothers that's, me. An iron robot maid wouldn't say that. <laughs> yes, that's right. Anyway, so I was working for that's incredible. I was working for um, Anna Barbera on both Richie Rich and the comic book division. And I was working for Sid and Marty Croft. And for one period there, I was also working for Dick Clark's company on a variety show. Wow. So I had, at that point, for some reason, every show you worked on, every project you worked on gave you a company jacket. I had company jackets for all of those things. So there would be days when I would just go from studio to studio, work for two hours here, three hours there, whatever. And I would have all four jackets in my car. And then each time I went to a place, I would put on the wrong jacket. I would never wear my That's Incredible jacket at That's Incredible. I would never wear my Hanna-Barbera jacket at Hanna-Barbera, you know, so on, because I wanted to always kind of announce to those people, you know, I have other work. You better treat me nice. <laughs> and when one job went away, fine. So it's just one less jacket in the trunk of my car. <laughs> so that was easy to do. I, I tell people, if you do enough different things, you really don't have to do any of them very well. People think you're versatile. Just mm. by the sheer fact that you've got the jobs. Did you ever have to apply for one or was it basically you were an affable, likable guy and people liked you and liked your I, work? I rarely have ever applied for work anywhere. My friend Mike Royer, my Bay people listening to this will know his name. He used to say, you get your first job in the business due to your ability, all the rest due to your dependability. 
Mm-hmm. What happened is just that I met people, and in show business, there is no more desirable quality you can have than unavailability. Mm. They really want to hire the guy they can't hire. They want to hire the guy somebody else has hired. Yeah. So I would do work for somebody, and they'd say, "Hey, when you got some time, come over and work for us." And that's kind of how it works. Uh, it still works that way at times, and at times it doesn't. Everything I'm saying, which sounds like, oh, this would be a great situation to have. There's a downside to it. You know, it, it's like not that you or I would ever be this. The most popular guy in class, school. You're the guy that nobody ever invites to things, so they figure you're busy. Or you, you know, the girl that figure, well, she must have a day for Saturday night. She's so pretty, so you don't get invited to things. Mm-hmm. And also, there are people who don't want to hire the guy who they can't own. They don't want to hire someone who works for somebody. There is also the downside of that. There are producers who would never hire me because they could never own me or uh, own is too strong a word, but they don't want to hire somebody who goes, if you're going to treat me badly, I'm going to walk out of here. For a while, there were a couple of animation studios that would put the studio someplace outside of Los Angeles and encourage you to move there. Oh, you want to work for us? Well, fine. Move to this city. And people would literally do that. They would up and move their families and their furniture and their lives, and they rent an apartment or a house someplace in the other city. Yeah. And once the company had them there, they weren't worried about losing them. <laughs> Boy. You know, you, you, you couldn't quit. Yeah. You know, I've heard of a couple of them that are known for that. You know, yeah. they were not in the mainstream, so there was nowhere else to get work. Yeah. And well, when I worked on, I kiss, I can say this. Now, when I worked on That's Incredible, it was for a company called Alan Landsberg Productions. Alan Landsberg Productions really did not like hiring people who worked anywhere else. They didn't like the idea that you could quit their show and go to another show. So a lot of the people I worked alongside of, and I'm not talking about writers necessarily, but more film editors and production people and camera guys. If you quit that company, you were basically out of show business. Mm-hmm. You couldn't just go across the street and work for another TV show because you didn't have any connections there. And the writers on that show, whom I was one, we were the only people who really, well, the director too, maybe, and the stars. But most of the people were kind of prisoners of the company. They didn't have other opportunities in show business because what they did on that show was so specialized to that show and nobody else knew them. They had no credentials anywhere else. And I was, I was literally, while I was working on That's Incredible, I was story editing the Richie Rich cartoons. So if That's Incredible had fired me, I would have lost, you know, a lot of my income, but I would not have been without a job. Mm. Anyway, and, and this is not the kind of thing I think people want to hear about. But No, uh, no, no. no we, we want to walk around in the building that's still sitting there, even though the inside is different, the outside is. And contrary to what some people say, oh, it's LA Fitness. Well, that's just one wing of it. I believe that was... Uh, built later and then the right side with the sort of cupola the jetsony thing that was added on later on but all of that was hanna barbera at one time that entire complex yeah Yeah, it was an enormously fun place to work there was always somebody fun you could go to lunch with uh you could wander around and i was there at a time when there were still people from the earliest days of hanna barbera there there were people in the earliest days of animation Dave Tendelar was working in animation there. I mean, you know, guys who had worked for Fleischer, guys who had worked for Disney in the golden era. And of course, like I said, I shed it off to Tex Avery. And at one point, 
Frizz Freeling had an office across the hall from me for about two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then you just walk through the halls and there's people you'd run into who had animation history in their blood. It was just an amazingly talented place. I enjoyed tremendously. The main office I had, the one I shared with Tex at times, the story I'm going to tell you was not when Tex was sharing an office with me. Uh, the office I had was right across the hall from the recording studio. And when a Smurfs session would let out, Jonathan Winters would walk into my office. Wow. And usually there'd be a couple other writers in there with me. We didn't sit at our typewriters all day. We all socialized and talked a lot. And Jonathan would poke his head in. Uh, He's looking for an audience. Jonathan always liked to find an audience to entertain. And he'd poke his head in the office. And I'd say, oh, you're here to read the gas meter? And he'd go, (laughs) yes, sir. And he'd become a gas meter reader. And I'd interview him as a gas meter reader. It was like you know, a TV show where Jonathan Winters is improvising live on the TV show. I'm thinking to myself, I'm sitting here chatting with Jonathan Winters, and it was just a fun, fun thing. There were downsides working for Hanna-Barbera. There was a lot of angst at time, and, you know, this show is behind schedule. This show is failing. This person has to be fired, things like that. There were negative sides to it. But when it was good, it was a great place to work. Let me get to, actually, since we're talking about everyday life there, Did you see Barbara and Hannah running around? I mean, what was the atmosphere like? Well, the atmosphere was that the building was kind of bisected. Bill Hannah was upstairs on the second floor. Joe Barbera was downstairs on the first floor. Joe and Bill did not cross paths very much, which led to a lot of rumors that they were not speaking to each other, which I don't think were ever true. The idea was that Joe's job was to go to the network, take the meetings and sell the shows. And, his department's jurisdiction over his show pretty much ended when the scripts were done. Mm-hmm. And once there were scripts, they went to storyboard artists, and now they were in Hannah's jurisdiction. And Hannah was the guy who worked in shirt sleeves. I have photos of the two of them together, and Bill Hannah is in shirt sleeves, and Joe Barbera is in a you know very expensive sport coat. <laughs> and that's that would tell you a lot about the two things. Joe Barbera was a wonderful salesman. He would go to the meetings and he would sell a show and he would make it up on the spot if he had to, or he would take in three or four shows to pitch and the networks would like this element of this one and that element of that one. He'd figure on the spot a way to combine the two ideas and he'd sell Casper and the Space Angels (laughs) or something else that was a hybrid of two different things he was pitching. And he was a wonderful sales guy. I could tell you 12 stories about Joe Barbera, the salesman, but I tell people that if Joe Barbera had been a used car salesman, everyone in the city would have owned a 10-year-old Chevrolet. He was great (laughs) at this stuff. And Bill Hanna was in charge of production, and he was sometimes not there because he was flying to Hanna-Barbera, Australia, or to Taiwan. He was the one who dealt with the subcontracting studios outside the building. He was the one who supervised what was laid out in the building. So there was a little line of demarcation there. You, you could be in the Bill Hanna section, or you could be in the Joe Barbera section. And the location of your office kind of told you which one you were responsible to. Mm-hmm. Although when we started the comic books, I was in the Bill Hanna wing, and <laughs> then later I was in the Joe Barbera wing. They moved us around. It wasn't the neatest orderly system. But, you know, I'd run into one or the other frequently. And Barbera liked the fact that I was one of a half dozen people in the building who knew the history of the studio like crazy. Mm-hmm. Barbera would stop me and say, what's Wilma Flintstone's maiden name again? And I'd go, Slag Hoople. Thank you. you know, <laughs> He didn't remember that, but I did. You know, Sometimes you'd be caught between the two of them 
Bill Hanna would say to me, go tell Joe to do this. And I'd go to Joe and he'd say, Bill, Bill, we're not doing that. You know, I, I was between the two guys. It was tough to argue. I was like the hyphen, Hannah Barbera. I was in the between the two guys. Yeah. I got along with both of them. Fine. Even when I decided to quit the building, when I decided to leave, Barbera was very nice to me. And then when I ran into him after that, he was very nice to me. And late in his life, when he was, you know, kind of semi-retired and he was working for the Warner Animation, there was no one Hanna-Barbera really, except in name only. He was working for the Warner Brothers Animation Division over there. He would sometimes have one of his assistants call me and say, Joe, I'd like to have lunch with you. Oh, and wow. I'd go to lunch with Joe. And he would tell me the same stories he told me before. It was, <laughs> you know, he, he was, I don't know how old he was, 90, 88. Yeah, he was like well into his 90s, yeah. Yeah, and he would start telling stories, and you couldn't stop him. You can't interrupt him and say, Mr. Barbera, I've heard that story four times, but fine. And I, I loved him in, on certain levels, definitely. He was, you know, it, it's, again, it's something like, here I am, eight years old, nine years old, parked in front of the TV set watching Huckleberry Hound, watching Quick Draw McGraw, loving what I'm seeing on the air. And now I'm sitting in a meeting with Joe Barbera. Mm -hmm. It's very surreal. I left that company because I just had trouble arguing with him. He was Joe Barbera. His name was on the building. And we had wonderful little adventures and things like that and moments of real bonding. But there's also the fact that, you know, there's certain people in the world it's hard to argue with who they were. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and I got to know a lot of my heroes. Joe Barbera is not the only person in that category because I got to know Dawes Butler and I got to know June Ferre and I got to know Stan Freeberg and I got to know Paul Winchell. Paul Winchell was one of my heroes. I've still got in my living room exact replicas of Jerry Mahoney and Knucklehead Smith. And yeah. all of a sudden, I'm having lunch with Paul Winchell and thinking to myself, I was used to watch this guy on. Hearts Mountain Circus show or whatever it was, or Cartoon Rooney or whatever it was, cartoonies. You know, and now I'm sitting in his living room. You know, it's just very strange to deal with that. We are now to the point where all my heroes from my childhood pretty much are gone. It's kind of sad to realize that. We just lost Jimmy Weldon a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. He was the oldest guy I ever worked with and knew who had done cartoons that I watched as a kid. I loved watching Yaki Doodle cartoons. I loved hanging around Jimmy Weldon or talking to Doug Young or Don Messick or any of those people. And the same thing was true with Michael Maltese and some of the artists and, and, and such. And they were down now to very few people from that era. Yeah, it did span years. Wasn't Irv Spence somebody who went to school with Barbara and worked for him like for life? Was that? Well, you know who did was Harvey Eisenberg. Ah. They were longtime associates. They worked together all the time. You know, and I worked with Dick Bickenbach for yeah. a while on the Hanna-Barbera comics. And again, with the comic books, I wrote Hanna-Barbera comics that were drawn by Pete Alvarado wow. and Tony Strobel and Kay Wright, the same guys who drew them when I was reading them when I was eight. Yeah, yeah. And Chase Craig was the editor there. I mean, it's, it's I must have told you this story, but Dawes Butler and I would go to lunch and one time we were standing at a restaurant waiting to be seated. And you know, nobody else around us knew who I was with. Dawes didn't look like anybody special when he, in, in real life. And the guy ahead of us waiting for a table, the lady seeing people, says to them, oh, come this way, gentlemen. And the guy does this bad snagglepuss impression and goes, 
exit stage right into the dining room. <laughs> and Darth looks at me, and out comes the authentic voice of Snagglepuss saying, heavens to plagiarism. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know uh, it was just a dream type in that sense. I used to have Dawes on my answering machine. He recorded one for me as Yogi and one for me as Huckleberry Hound. And I'd check my messages and people would say, Evan Air, that's the lousiest impression of Yogi Bear I've ever heard in my life. Why don't you give it up? You can't do Yogi Bear very well. <laughs> but I got to work with a lot of those guys and I loved them. I loved being with them. And they loved the fact that I respected their work and knew what it was. Yeah. When I was doing the Garfield and Friends show, I hired a lot of guys I just wanted to work with voice actors. Mm -hmm. I hired Shepard Mencken. You know who that is. Mike Grashcott. That's right. And he comes in and he had not done a cartoon in several years. Nobody was hiring him lately for cartoons. Shepard Mencken, great cartoon voice actor, but I suspected his career. Cartoons were like 5% of his income. He was an announcer. He was a voiceover specialist. He did commercials. He was the spokesman for Jack in the Box restaurants for 20 years huh. and things like that and, and all sorts of places. And, and he comes in and he's surprised that anybody knows who he is. And he sees me, who's, you know, I was probably in my late 30s, but I probably looked to him like I was 12. And he says, what am I doing here? And I said, well, I wanted to hire you. I've got this character, and I think you could maybe, you know, give me what I want. And he said, well, what do you want? I said, well, is there any way you could sound like that old cartoon character, Clyde Crashcup? <laughs> and he looks at me like, well, I was the voice of Clyde Crashcup. And I go, I know that. And he laughed. He goes, oh, okay. <laughs> and he was delighted that somebody asked for him. And we had a lot of those people in. I hired a lot of people for voices because they were in my favorite movie. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Yeah. We had Buddy Hackett in and Jonathan Winters and Don Knotts. They had Arnold Stang and Marvin Kaplan, other people who were in mad world. But I also hired some voice people who hadn't worked lately. Yeah. Marvin was one of those. Dick Beals. And, Dick uh, Beals, yeah. Yeah. And Julie Bennett. People like that who had not done voice work in quite some time uh, or, or done cartoons. They were still active in the business, but they just had, you know, Frank Nelson and people like that. Mm -hmm. It was just neat to have that connection with them. And they were pleased that someone in my age bracket knew who they were. Because if you're a 65, 70-year-old, 80-year-old actor, you spend an awful lot of your life auditioning for people that look like teenagers to you. Yeah. And don't That's, know who you are. Yeah. And one of the most joyous experiences I had in cartoons was working with Howard Morris, mm -hmm. who had a big chip on his shoulder about that. Howie Morris was very angry about the fact that he would go into auditions and the people doing the hiring didn't really know who he was. Yeah. And he, when he understood that I knew everything he'd ever done and that I had asked for him, I'd written the part for him, he was delighted. Because, yeah. you know, how he was at times felt forgotten by his own business. He loved to work. He loved working with younger actors, which most of them were. And he loved the fact that I took care of some of the older actors. You know, one of the downsides of show business, which seems glamorous, is that you can have tons and tons of work January through June and nobody wants you for the rest of the year. My friend Lorraine Newman used to say, you can see them walking around L.A., with the where did my series go look on their faces. Yeah, yeah. It is quite a come down if you're on a regular TV series that all of a sudden people don't know who you are. The series ends and all of a sudden you have to wait in line longer at a restaurant. Or you're unsure if people know who you are when they're talking to you. And if they do notice who you are, then they say, oh, so what do you work on these days? And you yeah. don't have an answer. It's embarrassing to not have an answer to that question, especially if you're an actor who's worked most of their lives. So that's always a problem. And 
you know, a lot of these people are very happy that they get remembered. I mean, you can see them at autograph shows sometimes. Mm-hmm. These autograph shows, there are people there who haven't been asked for their autograph in quite a while. And now all of a sudden, there's a situation where people who remember their work come up there and talk to them and get an autograph photo and pay for a photo with them. And they're stars again for, mm-hmm. for the, the duration of the show. It's a good, bad, there's a good part of this and a bad part of this. You know, the cartoon voice actors... There's a little ageism in the hiring there, but, you know, Janet Waldo was playing teenagers into her 90s. That's true. And June Foray literally did her last cartoon voice job as Rocky. I think she was 99 or 98 or 99. She didn't work as much as she wanted to in later years, but she was still June Foray. And and when she won her uh, first Emmy, I took her to the Daytime Emmy Awards and walked her up on stage and you know, held on to her. My whole mission in life was for her not to fall because June had fallen a lot. She was uh, a little stubborn about using a cane or a walker, certainly. And she wanted to show everybody she wasn't an old lady, even though she was in her 90s. And so I held on to that woman's arm with a vice grip the entire evening. I would not let her fall no matter what. When she had to go to the ladies' room, I found a woman to take her in. I wouldn't let her go to the ladies' room by herself. And just before... We got to her category. She said, what do I say if we won? I said, tell them how old you are. And she said, I don't want to do that. I said, they will be thrilled that someone your age is getting an Emmy. You are striking a blow for ageism. Mm -hmm. And she said, you're right. And she got up there and she told them she was 91, I think, at the time or 92. And the audience went nuts. Yes. Yeah. Here's some proof that your career doesn't have to end when you're old. That's right. And she thanked me for making her say that. Because she was afraid it would cost her work. I said, June, you're getting an Emmy. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, and I'm standing next to you and I'm the main guy who hires you. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and then the whole evening was fascinating because there's this reception afterwards. And June and I were sitting at a table and there's people were lining up to meet her. The whole daytime television industry. And not just cartoon people, just civilians. Were you at the uh, memorial we did yes. for her at the yes. academy? I Absolutely. told the story there about taking her to that evening and how wonderful it was for her. It was like one of the greatest evenings of her life because she was being honored while she was still alive to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. People were bowing to her and getting excited. And it was teenagers who were waiting in line to get the autographs of soap opera stars who were there. And they treated June like the biggest star of the evening. They knew who she was. They had to know who she was. And I'm walking her through this gauntlet of fans to get into our car to get her out of there. And somebody else is carrying her Emmy for me because I've got my vice grip on her hands. Yeah, those are heavy. Yeah, so somebody else is carrying the Emmy. And there is a woman. We'll never forget this. This girl is like 17 years old. She's on her cell phone. She was obviously on June's IMDb page. And she's going, she's Cindy Lou Ho. This is Cindy Lou Ho. <laughs> and, and she's like as thrilled as you could be to be in the presence of any star. Because Cindy Lou Ho is part of their lives, part of their childhood. That's right. So, Millions. And, and, you know, and Cindy Lou Who is a job that June did in like 15 minutes. <laughs> she, it's, she's got like four lines in the whole show. She was probably in and out of the studio in half an hour that day. Mm-hmm. And yet, here is now, you know, decades later, and people are excited about it. People who were not born when she did that mm-hmm. are excited about her. So it was a wonderful evening. I said on this panel we had at San Diego, you were probably there for it. 
there are certain of us who were fortunate enough to be in the business at a time when we could work with the Dawes Butlers and the Mel Blanks and the Don Messicks and the June Ferrays. And there are wonderful voice actors of a later generation also, who people will be excited to meet or are excited to meet also. But we worked with the ones who invented the business. We worked with the ones who, who invented voice acting. Yeah. Lots of people can do a great Bugs Bunny, but I got to work with Mel Blanc, you know. Yeah. It's a little different. They invented the business. Yeah, that's right. They invented it. Mel kind of invented the voice business from an actor's stand. And Dawes kind of perfected it. Yeah. And it's just something that's still, I, I feel like this podcast is being listened to by people who love animation. I feel I want to share this joy I have about these people with others. I want to share this joy and, and let you live vicariously through the experience that I got to, I got to direct Mel Blanc. I got to direct Dawes Butler and people like that. It still kind of amazes me. And Hanna-Barbera was to get back to HB. That was a place where a lot of this happened. Yeah. And where you'd be meeting people whose work you grew up on and you'd be working on characters sometimes. I had kind of staked out, everybody in the building knew that I was nuts for the old Dawes Butler voice character. So every time a project came up, which might you know revive them or put them in a new context, they would usually call me and ask, do you want to do this? That seems to be the common thread is that this was a place where you know, generations grew up watching all of their work, but generations were working there. They had people like Tex Avery come back and Frizz Freeling, who they worked with in the 30s, and people would come back and come back. And then there were young animators and young people who were just starting. That is an astonishing thing. The concentration of talent in that bill. And we're talking about what, 1,400 people? You know, this is not a boutique. This was a huge enterprise. Yeah, you could never get a sense of how big it was because so much of it was done off the premises. That's true, yeah. And, you know, the building itself, I don't know how many people it held. And there were parts of the building where people were doing stuff. I have no idea what they were doing in those in those offices. I didn't go that near the ink and paint departments or the background departments. I just didn't know anybody there and had no business there. But I, I had a lot of friends who were in layout. and I'd go over there all the time. And the guys in the layout would spend half their time drawing cartoons and half the time drawing insulting caricatures of each other <laughs> or of management. <laughs> there were an awful lot of Bill and Joe cartoons on the wall. And there was this wonderful creative thing. And you find guys who had worked in animation or in comic books over the years and things like that. There was a period when I'd try to go to lunch. If I was jumping around places, I'd try to get to Hanna-Barbera around 11. I'd go someplace else in the morning and get there about 11 so I could go to lunch with Alex Toth or Tex Avery or Chuck Couch or whoever else was in the building at that moment, or my friend Scott Shaw or mm -hmm. whatever, Dawes Butler sometimes would be there. There was always somebody interesting to go to lunch with, and you just keep finding history around there. And every so often, Mr. Barbera would call me in, and he'd start talking about the old days and stuff. And he called me in one time, and he said, what would you do with Rough and Ready today? And we talked about Rough and Ready for a while. Isn't that great just um, to do that? I mean, here we are well, talking about Rough know, and Ready. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm telling you the upside. There were a lot of downsides. I don't want to make well, people sound any, like I had to, But any job, job would be. I don't think people feel that way. Like you said, you're sharing it through your eyes so we can kind of look through your eyes as if we're there. And there's a story that you told, and this is a nice way to button this. 
you know, they would sometimes strain themselves to the point of how in the world are they going to get this volume of work done and keep some level of quality and all of that. And can you tell me the story about when you asked Bill Hanna about maybe if you did one less project? Oh, yeah. Well, Bill worked insane hours. I mean, I mean, you could make many criticism of Bill Hanna, but goofing off was not one of them. And I was in my office working on Richie Rich one evening about 7 p.m. It was dark out. The janitors were coming around cleaning in the offices. And Bill comes in and he sits in my guest chair in my office and starts chatting with me, saying hello. And a lot of it is like, here's an employee I haven't talked to lately. I need to. And, and, and Bill and Joe always insisted you call them Bill and Joe. Mm-hmm. A lot of people couldn't do that. A lot of people would call Joe Barbera Mr. B because it was just a little intimidating. It seemed wrong to call him because of who he was. Mm-hmm. But Bill was Bill, and I had complained a number of times about the schedule, which was a killer schedule. You were always behind. No matter when you started, I was started at Richie Rich, and I was being paid by the show, not by the week. I think I was the only writer there who was being paid by the episode, not by the week, because I was doing other jobs and I wasn't coming into the building constantly. The other people were coming in every day and I had more freedom to come and go. I could skip coming to the office for a couple of days and nobody would say I was goofing off because it didn't change my income to not come in mm-hmm. as long as they had the shows on time. And they would tell me you're three weeks behind and I'd quickly hurry and get four scripts done. And they'd tell me you're five weeks behind now. You couldn't get ahead. They keep moving the schedule so that you were always behind because they wanted it as fast as possible. And I would remind Bill that I was being paid by the show. They weren't saving money by having me work faster. I was going to pay me a flat fee for the whole season, no matter how many weeks it took me. But he wanted them faster because what would happen would be that they had these people sitting in Taiwan or in the Philippines or in Korea, whatever, animation units, and they had to pay those people whether they had work or not. So they always had to have work for them. The worst thing in the world, as far as Bill was concerned, was there's people on the payroll who are not working. They have nothing to do. So if, let's say, Super Friends was running behind, the network wasn't approving scripts, art wasn't getting done, whatever it was, they're in a crisis and they'd go, "Uh uh-oh, we don't have a Super Friends for the people in Korea to work on next Monday. And so they'd send them a Richie Rich some of the weirder looking episodes came when the guys who had learned perfection of drawing super friends were suddenly told to draw Richie Rich. Hmm. Not every artist could make that transition easily, but it happened. So I was saving the money, even though Richie Rich was on time and schedule, I keep getting behind because they give a Richie Rich show to some other unit Hmm. to keep it busy. So I was complaining about that. And Bill said, look, Mark, we've got to, you got to play the game here. You've got to work with our schedules. I know you don't like it. And I said to him, I just always feel that you always sell one more show than you've got the people for. If you've got enough people in this building to do seven shows, you sell eight. If you've got enough to do five shows, you sell six. What would be wrong with selling one less show one season? And the answer, he said, was, you know, look, go over to the layout department. You, you pick the people to lay off. And you have to remember that Bill and Joe were guys who grew up in the Depression mm-hmm. and all their constituents in the 40s and, and wherever they were to the MGM, these were guys who grew up in the Depression. And a lot of the comic book artists I worked with, like Jack Kirby at that time, were guys who grew up in the Depression. 
And for the people who grew up in the Depression, the worst sin in the world was not to have a job, Mm. not to have a paycheck, not to be able to bring home a paycheck every Friday or every Monday, whatever day they paid, to your family to pay for the rent and the groceries. Mm -hmm. And Bill and Joe were very proud of many things, and justifiably so. But one of the things I learned they were both so proud of was the fact that look how many people put their kids through college and build homes and families working for Hanna-Barbera. Right. How many of those guys would not have had a place to go or would have not have been able to do animation? They would have, you know, Tex Avery might have had to be a Walmart reader or something like that if no animation studio would hire him. But he got to be Tex Avery. And maybe he didn't love the cartoons he was doing for Hanna-Barbera, but he preferred that to not doing cartoons at all. Mm. And in Tex's case, he'd had some family problems, some dark things that had happened to him, tragedies, and he wanted to work. He had been told many times by Bill and Joe, if you ever need a job, come on over. And they'd said that to lots of people, not just people whose names you'd recognize, to ink and paint people and background painters and people like that. We will have a job for you always. We will find a place for you. And usually they could. There were layoffs. There were times when they just couldn't take anybody on because there's an economics to this business. Mm -hmm. You can't spend money on people who are not contributing to the product that pays the bills. Nevertheless, it was preferable to sell that one more show than to go tell, you know, name of six layout guys, we have no work for you. And obviously, there's a profit motive here. Obviously, Taft was always nagging them to sell more shows, do as much as possible. And of course, also by selling one more show, they might have kept somebody else out of the marketplace, you know, stop another studio from getting launched, stop another studio from taking work away from them next season. Yeah, it was a tough business. Very tough, yes. But it's quite a history. And there's so much more I want to talk to you about. Each one of these people you mentioned, I think there's so many stories. So thanks so much, Mark, for taking the time. Anytime, anytime, Greg. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help me make more of them, please click subscribe and tell your friends. We hope you enjoyed the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara with Greg Airborne. Please join us again, and many thanks for listening. Hey, hey, hey.